0: Well, for the last time in a long time i 'm going to tell you turn to first Peter and we 're looking at the very last verses first peter we 're going to focus in on one person, one word, but I want you to catch the context there so first Peter chapter five and let 's look at verse thirteen and fourteen together first peter chapter five as you 're turning there i 'll just Just mention how remarkable this church is and the work of the Spirit of God in this church. I'm so thankful for you. There is a holistic ministry here where where God has given us privilege to serve people young all the way through the generations to the old, and they're attracted to what God is doing here. I'm so thankful and grateful that you and I are part of that kind of movement. Now, let's turn in God's word, 1 Peter 5, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Anybody get a greeting today with a kiss of love? (laughs) I can't remember, but typically Kay and I will greet one another as we're departing the house with a kiss of love, but I can't remember if I did that this morning. Did I do that this morning? But good. (laughs) Some of you might have greeted one another. It's um, a customary practice if you're from that Middle Eastern region of the world. I'm not talking about that sloppy wet kiss from old codgers that get planted on the side of your face. I'm not talking about that. This is what the Bible mentions four times in the New Testament. It's a holy kiss. It would be the custom practice of that period, of that age, very similar to you and me extending a hand. And typically that gets done for men to men, perhaps women to women. That's the case here. He's talking about men who greet each other with a holy kiss, a customary practice of greeting one another, or when you're communicating that you're departing one another. And what you're doing there is communicating a, a family love. So many Christians had lost their families because they had they had uh, been isolated, rejected, dismissed from the family once they left faith of Judaism and moved toward christ and christianity they were kicked out of the families and there was no longer that that embrace of family members to one another and so the family of god would greet each other with a holy kiss Uh, i I just wanted to mention that to you in case some of you were saying oh let's develop that practice here Uh uh-uh it ain't gonna happen (laughs) so peter ends his first letter to these exiled christians by a greeting And it's a greeting from the church there in Rome and from a close friend of his who is sort of a mentee for Peter. It's Mark. Mark says, tell your mom and them hello. That's what he's saying here. How many times have you said that to somebody? Oh, tell them I said hello. And you don't tell them that that person said hello, do you? But Peter actually does it. He actually writes that, hey, Mark said to tell you hello so his intention to the letter was to be written to and read by those saints who were dispersed all into the to the asia minor area that what is northern or excuse me southern modern day turkey it would be the places like pontus and galatia and bithynia and Cappadocia and those those places that you and I have been talking about for some time and he wrote that letter of course from the epicenter of persecution in the world from the heart of the Roman Empire he has written that from Rome now you remember it's the epicenter because Nero has spread some lies about the cities burning pointing it towards Christians as if they are the ones who torch the city And it wasn't just that the buildings were destroyed, but that everything that went with the buildings, including their customary practices, the religion, the culture of the day, was also ruined by that great fire. Most believe that Nero said it himself, in order to feed his lust for buildings, he loved to have the idea of building more and having people talk about him as being the great builder of Rome And so he does that and he points to the Christians as if they did that. And there was already a tension among Christians because they were closely aligned with the Hebrews who were hated by the the Roman people. And now this is like escalated it. So it's the epicenter for the persecution that is taking place against Christians. And Peter is writing a letter to those persecuted saints that are now exiled from the Roman areas Into the places of Asia Minor, trying to get away from some of that. And he's writing to them from that epicenter. So he uses a covert term for the church there in Rome, not wanting to draw attention to them. He calls them the ones who are in Babylon. He's talking about the saints who are there in that idolatrous city of Rome. He's saying, those people are sending their greetings to you. Now, remarkably, there is a church that is thriving in that evil, idolatrous city. And because of the hatred and the abuse, and Paul, uh, Peter not wanting to draw attention to them, he just refers to them as she who is in Babylon. You know what really moves me in this section of the closing of the letter? Those final words that he writes to them saying, Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. And I think what moves me is because the writer and the recipients are experiencing intense opposition and suffering. Peter is only a couple of years away from his martyrdom, his death coming at the hands of the Romans because he preaches the gospel. He's just a couple of years out of being executed And yet he writes, as the one who is a sufferer, to those who are suffering, peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That encourages me because it helps us to come to conclusion about this. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus live in the peace of Christ. Regardless of what is going on around us, regardless of what is happening to us, Our peace rests in our identity in Christ because in Christ, as Peter has already written to them, he is restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing us. Everyone in Christ Jesus can experience his peace because we know that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And we know that Christ is reconciling all things to himself. There is coming a day when all of that brokenness and all that fracturing and all that persecution, opposition, and suffering is going to come to an end. And we know that Christ is going to reconcile all to himself. So in that, we can be at peace. This is temporary. Peter is lifting that before them, blessing them with peace. So as I close the series today, I wanna zoom in on one final person. He's just mentioned right here in this epistle, John Mark. He says, John Mark sends his greetings to you. Tell him I said hello, Mark says. Now the introduction that we have of John Mark is actually in the 12th chapter, the 12th verse of Acts. It's just a quick, brief introduction. In that passage, Luke is introducing him as John and he says, oh, his other name is Mark. We find out there that he is the son of a wealthy woman whose name is Mary. Now, we think that she's wealthy for a couple of reasons. Number one, she has a home large enough to host an event like a prayer meeting. And secondly, she actually has servants. One of the servants we know the name of is Rhoda. And so here is a man named John also goes by Mark who has a mom named Mary and she is of means and they gather people in their home in order to have Bible study if you will the teachings of the apostles who were repeating the teachings of Christ that were given to them by the Holy Spirit reminded of them by the Holy Spirit later would become the New Testament for us they're going over those kind of things and they're having intense prayer sessions. They're, they're praying deeply. So we know Mark has a mom who is in faith in Christ and is pressing towards the things of Christ. And we know he has a cousin as well who is in Christ and his name is Barnabas. And so we find out from the context of Acts chapter 12 that Mary's house is this gathering place for saints of God, Christ followers, and Mark has come from a very strong Christian family, a family of faith. One night, Mark's mother is hosting one of those prayer sessions, and there's great need for that vigil because Herod has just executed James and Peter is in the inner prison expecting his execution at any given point. And so they are praying together in Mary and Mark's home in order that the Lord might intervene on Peter's behalf. Little did he know that that prayer session was going on, that Peter was awakened by an angel. He said, hey, get up. Put your clothes on. Get that cloak wrapped around you. I want you to follow me out of this place to freedom. Uh, He had been there with chains around his hands in the inner area, guard station not only to the right and left of him, but just outside the door. And we'll find out as the angel is leading him, there's another one set just outside the next door, and there is a locked gate around the the perimeter of the wall, there's a locked gate that they have to get through to get out. And the angel takes those chains and releases Peter from them. And he walks right past the guards, walks right through the door that is opening up and the guards that are standing there outside the second one. And even the gate, the iron gate that is there, at the exit is opened up for them and they're walking out. Now, Peter's got this thing going on in his mind. Maybe you would be there too. Is this for real? Am I having a vision or is this really happening? Anybody ever been in that place? in the night where you're like, uh, what's going on here? That's exactly what he's dealing with. And it's not till they're in the city walking down a street and that angel suddenly vanishes that Peter says, oh no, this is no vision. This is God's angel that has come to me by the Lord in order to rescue me. That's when it all sort of clicks for him. And he decides he's gonna keep on walking and he's gonna end up at Mary's house and he is going to surprise the prayer vigil. <laughs> they have been praying for him. And they are so taken aback that he is at the gate knocking. And Rhoda has gone to the gate to open it up. And she's so, she's so bewildered by what she sees. She doesn't even open the gate to him. She runs back in and tells them. Oh, yo, you're seeing, you're seeing his spirit. He's already been executed. That must be his spirit you're seeing. They can't get that to jive in their head either. Until he begins to tell them all that God had done for him that night. And how he had intervened and answered their prayers. And then he just kind of slips out in the night to go to another place. Not wanting to draw attention, the Roman soldiers there to that place. And then he ends up going on down to Caesarea. So there's little doubt that Mary and her friends that are gathering around in her house... Many of them are disciples of Christ who were there at the time of his life. And some of them are even the apostles like Peter. They had a significant impression of the gospel upon Mark. He's young, but he is very impressioned by them and the truths that the gospel has brought to him. And then John's cousin, John Mark's cousin, Barnabas, had a great impact on him as well. Now, you're probably very familiar with. With Barnabas, his name is actually Joseph, but the apostles give him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Uh, It's a way of affirming him. Uh, We're not going to call you by your name Joseph anymore. We're going to call you Barnabas because you're a son of encouragement. Every time we're around you, you build us up, you encourage us. He's from the tribe of Levi, he's uh, actually uh, there from Cyprus. He's an amazing man. The Bible says that he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. The Bible actually says in Acts eleven twenty four 24, because of his ministry and the impact he had on many people, they came to know the Lord Jesus. He was a man who was a soul winner, who wanted to make sure that people knew about Christ and the good news of Christ. He was remarkably generous. You remember over in Cyprus, he ends up selling some of the property and he takes that possession that and the money that he gets from that and he just lays that at the apostles feet and just says however you think it ought to be spent you spend it in that way he was a wonderful generous man great encourager of the scripture and truth he was one who recognized the miraculous gospel impact and transformation that Saul went uh, came under in fact he's the one that actually took Saul to the apostles and said hey this dude's for real You you need to befriend him. You you need to link in ministry with him. It was Barnabas who did that. You see, when everybody else was rejecting Saul, he was saying, listen, I'm going to speak for him. It's not even going out on a limb. I trust God for him. It was Barnabas who did that. He was a leader of the Antioch Antioch church. In fact, that church commissioned him on the first mission journey. You know how we, we will have... 8, 9, 10, 11, whatever mission trips in the year where we commission people out. Uh, Antioch was the first church to do that. And it, it was a long missionary journey. Uh, spending time throughout the region just ministering the gospel to Christ. So Barnabas is one of those amazing men in the scripture. And he took his responsibility to nurture Mark seriously. Inviting him to join them on the very first mission journey as an assistant. He's going to be there to help them. Now, I want us to understand that Mark is in the thick of early Christianity. He's in the who's who, he's in the mix of all those people that God has been investing in through his son. His spirit had come to indwell, and he's right there in the midst of that. Though he's pretty young, he was more than likely an early adopter to the gospel. Placing his faith in Jesus and trusting his life to him. He's around the disciples, at least some of them, and he's around some of the apostles as well. And his mother, his cousin, they all have the impact of gospel teaching in his life. He knew the call to Christ. He knew what the call was to deny himself in order to have Christ, to take up his cross and follow hard after Jesus. And he knew that he would experience those moments of glee like when Peter busted out of jail at the hands of that angel. And, and he knew what the grief of the time was like, experiencing the sorrow of people who loved being martyred. He was honored to travel and assist Paul and Barnabas as a helper as they were expanding the gospel around the world, just like Acts 1-8 said would happen. So Mark seemed well-prepared for his life in ministry. He seemed well prepared for the gospel frontier. However, along the way, he falters. In fact, when Barnabas and Paul were in Perga of Pamphylia, it's there that Mark says, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm out of here. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go on back to Jerusalem. Now his departure came at a fairly difficult time in the ministry. They were actually in Cyprus and there was a, a little showdown that happened, a confrontation between Paul and an evil magician named Bar-Gius, Barjesus. And if you remember him, it got pretty serious at the end, this conflict did. And Barjesus actually ends up being struck blind by the apostle Paul and he's groping around in his blindness, walking away from that little scene. Mark saw that go down. He saw the conflict and he saw the persecution and the opposition that was rising up. And although there could have been more, the Bible only tells us of one convert in that whole region of Cyprus. For whatever reason, Mark calls it quits. He says, hey, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Or this is too difficult. Or I don't want to be in the middle of all this heated, contentious strife I I don't want to be here and so he bails on them I don't know all that happened I don't know the words that were said but Paul is not happy about this in fact he's in disagreement with Mark for leaving and although he didn't stop the mission from taking place it did hinder it because now Paul and Barnabas have got a little bit of a rub and later it's going to turn into a major fraction And their relationship. Now we need to pause right here in this narrative of Mark just to say everyone is vulnerable to missteps and times of faltering faith. Everybody. I mean this guy had it all together. There were so many people investing in his life. He was right in the middle of the, the center of all that was good and right. He was around the very people that God was doing incredible work in. If there's anybody that ought to be able to get it right, it ought to be Mark. And if there's anybody that ought to be able to get it right, it ought to be us. But everybody is vulnerable to missteps. Everybody has times of faltering faith. So like Mark, we can carry the treasure, the gospel within us. But that gospel that we carry in us is in jars of clay. We recognize that our faith is more prone to falter and break than we care to admit. In fact, this happens often because we hold the treasures of Christ and His Spirit within our unregenerate flesh, and that part that is yet to, been, to be glorified by Christ. Our spirit is made new, our spirit is right, our spirit is made alive in Jesus Christ, and will never be more in my spirit. Unto God that I am right now because Christ has transformed it. The same is true for you who are in faith. But all that is packed in a flesh that is very not glorified. My flesh still needs to be transformed. And so does yours. But as we mature and we grow in faith, we become more steadfast and more complete, don't we? In fact, the more we grow in Christ, the more we ask for wisdom when we find that God is generous to give us that wisdom without reproach. And that allows us to see and understand things very differently than we used to when we were so immature. Maturing, we learn not to doubt, allowing Jesus to be the anchor and the rock of our salvation in tumultuous times. But Mark wasn't quite there yet. Mark was faltering in his faith, and he fumbled. Now, Luke is very gracious when he writes about that in Acts. He doesn't give us details. He just makes a matter-of-fact statement. He just says that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. If not everyone, almost everyone has experienced times of vacillation. Perhaps you sensed God calling you to do something before, and you didn't take the steps of faith to do it. You were vacillating or maybe you started on a journey and you found out that journey was a little bit too difficult for you and you recognized the cost too high. So you step back and went the other direction or possibly like Mark, you've returned to what is familiar and easy and you have abandoned what is challenging and unknown Without a doubt, Mark regretted leaving the mission field. He regretted leaving that first leg. And if you don't mind me saying, it's the first steps of the first leg of that journey. Oh, sure, he had escaped the persecution that they experienced. And he certainly escaped being chased out of all those towns that Barnabas and Paul were chased out of. He escaped the stoning like what Paul experienced. He escaped all of that that he was nervous about probably. But he also missed seeing Paul raised. And he missed hearing these incredible, spirit-empowered, spirit-filled messages that brought the gospel hope to so many people. And he missed all those numbers of people coming to faith. And all those churches that were rising up. And all those elders that were left behind planted by those men who had been entrusted with the gospel call. He missed out on all the Holy Spirit had done throughout the regions of Pamphylia and Galatia. He missed all that. He missed the homecoming celebration of Paul and Barnabas when at that moment they declared all that God had done and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Like Mark, faltering faith is the biggest regret of our lives. But I want you to listen very carefully because I've been building up to this moment right here. We don't have to live in constant regrets. In fact, Jesus offers restoration and renewal. So the very fact that Peter is addressing the church with Mark helps us to understand that Jesus restores and Jesus renews people. And he allows us to be part of that great movement. So the Lord had worked in Mark's life to restore him and renew him, giving him another opportunity to be on mission. And he did it through people and the word and the spirit that would encourage Mark. So when it was clear that the time for the second missionary journey came about, Paul goes back to Barnabas and says, hey, why don't you join me? He said, I'd love to join you. Let's go back and let's encourage all those churches And Barnabas says, and I want to bring John Mark with me again. I want to give him another shot. Now, Paul, if you know Paul, he's very pragmatic. And Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, ain't no way. I've been there, done that, been bit once. Once, shame on me. Twice, shame on you. Not going back there. Uh, I, I think he might derail the mission again, so no. Now, Barnabas is standing up for his cousin. He's saying, oh, he's different. He's changed. Let's let's bring him back. And Paul and Barnabas have such a fracture that they split. And Paul says, you can take him if you want to take him, but you're not taking him with me. And Barnabas says, okay, I will. And Paul and Silvanus head off. And Barnabas and John Mark head off in a different direction. And they go back to Cyprus. Cyprus was the first leg of the first journey where Mark bailed on them. And they went right back there, sort of getting back on the horse after it had knocked them off. And now Mark stays the course throughout this journey. I can only imagine the kind of words that the conversation between Barnabas and Mark was like. Can can you, I think because he's the son of encouragement... Barnabas words to Mark in the midst of all that was like salve to his wounded spirit no doubt and all that championing of truth that Barnabas could expose Mark to he did undoubtedly affirming God's call in his life and Barnabas wanted to make sure that Mark understood hey in Christ Jesus all things are made new you don't have to walk around with that old weight and guilt He challenged him to grow steadfastly in his faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Peter, as well as continuing to invest in John Mark, later he would call him his spiritual son as we read in these parting words of this first epistle many believe that Mark actually traveled with the apostle Peter a good bit of time and if he did which I think he did as well he would have listened intently to all that Peter had been sharing all the messages that he had been preaching all the words that Jesus had spoke that Peter heard Peter was recommunicating that and doing it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who Jesus said he will come and he will remind you of all the things that I've said and you know what Mark is doing in the midst of all that? He is writing it down. He's taking copious notes in that. He's hearing what God is speaking through Peter and he is writing those things down. In fact, the early church fathers say that he took so, such copious notes that those notes would actually frame up and become what you and I have grown to love, the gospel of Mark. Papias the bishop of the Roman city Hierapolis Heriop- lived in the late 1st century and the early 2nd century and he wrote that Mark was the interpreter of Peter and he accurately wrote down all that he remembered you and I would know that that's by the inspiration of the holy spirit as an interpreter it very well could be that Peter would want to communicate to the gentile world and maybe mark was better at that communication so he could have actually interpreted into the greek language i think it's more that he transcribed that he was writing down that he made sure that all that peter was sharing that was true and right that needed to be passed along to all those who would be willing to read it that it got written down And so he wrote that. It's the reason why Justin Martyr in AD 150 said, the gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. Because he's recognizing that he's, he's taking those teachings of Peter and he's getting them down in paper. And you and I love to read about it from the gospel of Mark. So aren't we grateful that God's grace didn't allow Mark's faltering to crumble him to failure? I mean, isn't this like the Paul Harvey end of the story? That it's going to end well. Listen to me. You may have had great faults in your life and failures. You have had times of missteps. You've had times of great regret. But Jesus has come that your life will not crumble in that failure. Aren't we grateful for truths like that? Just the very mention of Mark by Peter just elevates that great gospel truth to us. We're thankful that the story doesn't just end with Mark's restoration in ministry, but that the personal restoration between he and Paul is significant as well. I kind of like the idea that we don't know the who, what, where, when, how about it. We don't know when it happened. We don't know who was there. We don't know what was said. All we know is that Paul and Mark get it right. They get it right to the point that they are so thick in ministry in the end that Paul can't help but write about him over and over and over. In fact, you'll find it in Philemon in that little short letter. It's only one chapter long. And here's what what Paul says. He mentions Mark as being with him in his imprisonment. And that's a big deal because there are times that Paul will actually say, everybody has abandoned me. Mark didn't abandon him. He was with him in his most desperate time. And we read about him as well over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. And there Paul sends the greetings to the church there at Colossae. And he says, hey, Mark says to tell you hello. And by the way, if he ever shows up there, You make sure you welcome him. And when Paul wrote the second letter to Timothy, he said, Timothy, I really want you to come. He's just a couple of years away from his death. I want you to come visit me. And while you're traveling to Rome, as you pass through, would you pick up Mark and bring him with you as well? So there's a great restoration It's a restoration of the gospel into Mark to say, hey, behold, Christ is making things new. He has taken that which you regret, and he has nailed it to the cross, and he's given you new life, and his spirit is breathing that new life in you. Walk in it. And he's saying to him as well, that gospel reconciling work is going to be evident in the way that you're willing to reconcile with other people around you who are in faith. And man, they champion that throughout the the epistles that Paul writes. So Mark grew and he matured in his faith and his life and ministry as a result of that. Oh, there was a day that people would say, oh, he's not given to Christ. He's not given to the hard things of Christ. But God had plans and God had purposes for Mark that were not gonna be thwarted by Mark's faltering faith. Those plans and purposes would be accomplished So the Lord restored him and nurtured him by his spirit and used people alongside of him to do just that, like Barnabas and Peter, to build him up in those things. And here's where I wanted to land. God has plans and purposes for you. Now, look at your handout. The only time I'm pointing to it today. Here I am, three quick points at the very end. And here they are. I'm going to lightning speed through them. Ready? Have you faltered in faith? Maybe right now, you find yourself faltering. Maybe previously, and man, it's like chains around you. It's like weightedness to you. You can't seem to get quite past it. It's just constantly reminded of it. Have you faltered in faith? If you have, I want you to Listen again to the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel, the good news of Christ is that he took your failures and nailed them to the cross of Calvary. Your failures were nailed with Jesus to the cross and he died with those failures. So listen, you don't have to carry what Christ took to the cross. They're not yours anymore. What do I do, preacher, to walk away from that? Oh, you do what you always do. You confess, you agree with God that that was a failure. And you repent, you walk away thinking differently. And you believe that Jesus has made all things new. And when the old devil brings it up because he's the accuser of the brethren, press toward that. Oh yeah, that's who I was, that's not who I am. Oh yeah, that's what I did and that's what Jesus took as his identity on the cross. As God was pouring out his wrath against that there on the cross. Who I am, who my identity is, is not that failure. It is God's righteousness in Christ Jesus. That's who I am. And he has credited that to me and he has declared that of me. And one day even my flesh will be just as glorified as that declaration That's who I am. Secondly, will you help someone who has stumbled on the journey and help them to write their course? That's where Barnabas was. That's where Peter was. They knew somebody who stumbled. Somebody had great regret. And they recognized that regret and that stumbling, that faltering could actually keep them from fulfilling the plan of God that he had for their lives. And they said, no, 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 not on our watch. We're going to help you to learn the gospel and believe it and trust it and walk in its treasure from here on out. And they began to shape Mark in a way that that faltering would not become the failure of his life. Would you be willing to do that? Now, I'm going to tell you out front, it's going to get messy, And it might even cost you temporarily some relationship with other people who don't agree with what you're doing. That's what happened with Paul and and Barnabas. Paul didn't agree with it. And there was a fracture there. It took a while for that to kind of get right. But you've got to be willing to extend out there in order to help somebody who has faltered in their faith. Would you be willing to go to them? taking the opportunity to mentor someone, calling them to stand in God's forgiveness and to walk again in his purposes and his ways, journey with them? Number three, is there a split relationship among us that God says needs to be restored? Some fractured relationship. Maybe like Paul and Mark or even Paul and Barnabas, you and someone, is there a fractured relationship? I I want to remind us in this moment that God has ministered to us in reconciliation. That when we fractured the relationship with God, God came to make it right through Jesus. He was reconciling us to himself. And because we have been reconciled in Christ Jesus, we have the ministry of reconciliation in that, in Christ So we are empowered to be reconciled one to another. So is there anybody in our lives that we need a restored relationship? Those are pretty good challenges for us, mentioned to us by just Peter, mentioning and lifting up the name Mark. Let's just take those and turn that into a prayer. Would you join me? In our faltered faith or in our faltering faith, God, we confess that sin to you. We renounce it and we repent from it and say, oh God, by your spirit, let us not go there again. It's our desire not to. And In this moment, Lord, we pray that as we confess and repent that you would help us to believe that you have plans and purposes for each of us and that we should journey toward them and in them richly. And Lord, as we receive that great grace from you, help us to be gracious to others who have stumbled as well. Maybe somebody who's stumbled right now and you find them failing in some area of faith, Without an accusatory or a judgmental attitude, Lord, we want to move towards them as one who has been reconciled in Christ. And we want to say, let's walk a journey together in faith. Help us, Lord, to do just that. And Lord, if there's a fractured relationship, would you help us to restore that in the name of Jesus? Would you help us to move toward that in reconciliation? so that that reconciling work of your spirit would be very evident in us and Christ himself would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.